0: Our scripture today comes from Matthew um, 18, 21 to 35, and it can be found on page 1527 on your pew Bibles, um, which I have to flip to myself. (laughs) (laughs) Then Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother when he sins against me? Up to seven times? Jesus answered, I tell you, not seven times, but seventy-seven times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As he began the settlement, a man who owed him ten thousand talents was brought to him. Since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. The servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay you back everything. The servant's master took pity on him, canceled the debt, and let him go. But when that servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. He grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe, he demanded. His fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, be patient with me and I will pay you back but he refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown in prison until he could pay the debt. When the other servants saw what had happened, they were greatly distressed and went and told their master everything that happened. Then the master called the servant in. You wicked servant, he said. I canceled that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had mercy on you? In anger, his master turned him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all that he owed. This is how my heavenly Father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother from your heart. Amen. When I was taking a psychology class, I learned about one really famous test called the Stanford Prison Experiment from 1971. The person running the study, Philip Zimbardo, offered people in the community $15 a day to simulate life inside a prison. Every volunteer for the study was randomly assigned a role, whether a guard or a prisoner. Zimbardo, who was running this study, took on the role of the superintendent of the prison. With screening beforehand, everybody in the study was considered psychologically healthy. Everybody in the study knew uh, that the roles were chosen randomly. So you could imagine that everyone would think that the whole thing was kind of silly, right? What did the prisoners do to deserve being prisoners? Nothing. What did the guards do to deserve being guards? Nothing. It was all random. There was no reason for the guards to feel superior and no reason for the prisoners to feel inferior. Everybody was making money out of it. So it's probably best for everybody to just get along, joke around a little bit, and collect a nice check at the end of the day. But that's not what actually happened. Even though the guards were chosen completely randomly, and they knew they were chosen randomly, they had power over the prisoners. They also had a role to play, and once they saw themselves in the guard uniform and their prisoners in the prisoner uniform, a switch flipped, and they really did believe that they were the good guys and the prisoners were the bad guys. The prisoners were told that they did something really bad, even though they didn't, and the prisoners believed them. Within a single day, the prisoners and the the jailers had real resentment for one another. The guards acted really cruelly toward the prisoners, to the point that by day three, several prisoners had mental breakdowns, um, and they had to leave the experiment. By the end of the experiment, even Philip Zimbardo, the one who was running the experiment, felt himself acting like a real superintendent of the prison, prison, walking around and talking like one. The experiment was meant to last two weeks, but by day five, they closed the whole thing. Many people consider it one of the most unethical experiments in psycho- psychological history because of how cruel everyone in the study was to each other. What that shows that is that even completely random power and status, which is completely unearned, can be taken very seriously by people. Abraham Lincoln said, any man can withstand adversity if you want to test his character, give him power. What do you do with whatever power you have really says a lot about you. Everybody has experience with some random person, even with a tiny amount of power. Like a person at the DMV who uses it in a really vindictive way. Or if you uh, remember in the office when Dwight is given the power to figure out who's going to work on Saturdays and uses it like against Jim. Anyway, that's a good one. <laughs> These people are just tyrants with less power. You also have experience with people who do whatever they can to help people. Both those things say a lot about a person. In this parable that Jesus gives, we see a really similar situation. The servant in this story owes 10,000 talents. Now, a talent at that time was about the equivalent of 20 years wages, one talent. It's a lot of money. If we take that 20 years times the median household income in the US times 10,000, we get 14 and dollars on our scale. It's a whole lot, in other words. Just an impossible amount of debt. Like you have no idea what a person could possibly do to get into that much debt. The servant pleads with the master and says that he's going to pay that whole debt off. And at that point, we're facing a really interesting question. What in the world makes him think that he can pay off $14.5 trillion? Either he was lying and just wanted to get some more time before he was sold, or he was just trying to play up the master's pity, or he was so incredibly delusional that he, th- he thought he could actually pay it back someday. Of course, we also have an absurd debt to pay God. We owe our entire lives to him, but in, order, in beyond that, we have sinned against him and need his forgiveness. If we try to make a deal with God about paying him all that back, are we lying? Are we playing on God's pity? Are we delusional? Even by merely selling the servant, the master would be having mercy. The servant owed far more than he was worth. The best of slaves were sold for a single talent. He owed 10000 And the master in the story somehow forgives all of that debt. But it says the servant going out from there, in other words, immediately after being forgiven, finds his fellow servant who owes him 100 denarii, or 100 days wages, or using our median household income, about $30,000. But notice here what happens, because it's a lot like what happens in the Stanford prison experiment. The servant at one time had no power at all, to the point that he could sell himself millions of times over and wouldn't pay for the debt. But all of that was forgiven. He does have power now. And in fact, he has quite a bit of power. But like the people in the Stanford prison experiment, he did not earn that power. In fact, what he earned was being sold into slavery with everything he owned, and then some. But he takes that completely unearned power and uses it cruelly against his fellow servant. He now is in the role of somebody like the prison guards in the experiment, with completely unearned power over people. And he has decided to immediately forget why he has that power so he can treat treat his debtor cruelly. The reason that I bring up the Stanford Prison Experiment here is because it's a really easy to read, it's, it's really easy to read this passage and think, wow, this servant guy is a real jerk. He's acting completely unreasonably. I sure know I wouldn't act like something like that. But actually, this is a psychologically tested element of our sinful human nature. When we get a little bit of power over someone because they need forgiveness from us, we justify our power by saying that we earned it somehow. And then we have a real temptation to use every bit of power in a cruel way against people because we tell ourselves that we earned this power and so we should be able to deal with it whatever we want. Only God has earned that power to withhold forgiveness and act cruelly, but he doesn't do it. The story that Jesus is telling here isn't a cautionary tale about some remote possibility that we're all capable of. He's telling us the story of who we are by nature. We are all by nature this servant who begs for mercy but doesn't give mercy to others in return. And honestly, it makes sense. We weren't made to forgive in the same way we weren't made to sin. But it's only fair that if we get $14.5 trillion of forgiveness from God, we should forgive a few pennies from others. So we have to actively correct ourselves, or this servant is who we will be. We have to remind ourselves that we've been forgiven an impossible debt by God, because we have sinned against him as long as we can remember. But Jesus is announcing to the world that a different kind of kingdom is coming to the world. And it's one that calls out us out of all our sinful nature and toward the loving forgiveness of God. You see, the people of Israel had a covenant with God that if they obeyed the laws that God gave them, then God would bless them, and through them he would save the whole world. God gave them a promised land with milk and honey, and if only they would keep their laws, which weren't really all that hard to follow. But over the course of almost a thousand years, almost no one even tried to obey God's law. And God was merciful with them all that time until finally he had some foreign invaders come and take the promised land away from them. For 500 years afterward, right up to the time that Jesus was speaking, the people of Israel longed for the forgiveness of sins. And what that meant was that Israel gets their promised land back, and the blessings of the covenant relationship they had with God would still be on, because all the sins that Israel had committed for a 1,000 years would finally be paid for. What Jesus is preaching is saying is that the forgiveness of sins has finally come to Israel. Every debt and wrong against God is, for, is forgiven. And the blessings of the covenant and the promised land can belong to everyone as long as they repent and follow Jesus. But the people of Israel had a lot of resentment for all these Gentile nations that kept them under subjugation. But God isn't just forgiving and canceling the debt of Israel, he's forgiving the sins of the whole entire world so that every, everyone can join in the feast and party of reconciliation. And just think of the worst sins that you've committed. This enormous debt that you owe God, because we have sinned against him since birth, is just getting canceled. No strings attached, no debt counseling, no mortgage, no wage garnishing, nothing. Just completely canceled. And it's being canceled because God himself is paying that debt. Because Jesus has fulfilled every bit of the law that God has given Israel. And is bearing the consequences of those sins and all the suffering of the world on his shoulders on the cross. And then he defeats those sins by rising from the dead and freeing us from the, its power over us. It is incredibly good news. The world is saved. Every burden we bear is being lifted off of us. Everything is set right. And God is returning to dwell with his people. And it's going to be just like sin never happened, except even better because God's unending love toward us has been revealed all the more through his forgiveness. So that is why Jesus says the kingdom of heaven is like this. In other words, now that the kingdom of heaven has come to earth, it's going to create situations a lot like what's in this story. The world has changed through the work of Jesus Christ. The reign of evil leaders and demons and arrogance and pride and vindictiveness have been cleared out. And now the world is under the new management of the God of heaven and of his Messiah and the citizens of his kingdom, the church. And if the world is changing, that means we're going to have to get used to some really new situations like this one. Every sin against God is being forgiven. And that means all of our debt is wiped clean and we can live free lives as sons and daughters of God. That means that at the very essence and core of this new kingdom, you find forgiveness of sins. All other kingdoms hold grudges and invade and conquer and draw blood based on wrongs committed generations ago. But this one is different. The kingdom that God is bringing to earth through Jesus Christ is based entirely on the forgiveness of sins. It's its founding charter. And that's because it has to be. No one would be a part of this kingdom if sins weren't forgiven, because everybody has sins that need to be forgiven. Forgiveness of sins is the central rule of this new kingdom, because it's the foundation it was built on. You cannot be a part of this kingdom if you do not forgive sins. In fact, the previous passage talks about exactly how a church should deal with the forgiveness of sins. A person should be given tons of chances, even after significant sins against the body of Christ. And if at any point in that process, a person in, church, in the church listens to you, repents, and changes his ways, Jesus simply says, you have gained a brother. No further punishment, no isolation, just full inclusion into the body of Christ. That's what the kingdom of God in the church looks like in action. Because of Christ's action on the cross, Now the world is in a situation like the servant in this story. You have all been forgiven an incredible debt. And the question is, will you forgive the debts that you are owed in this life? Will you recognize that the power that you now have to forgive sins is completely unearned? Because if you do, how could you not joyfully forgive even the biggest sins that offended you? This is a time for partying and joking and love and generosity for your neighbor, because you have been given an incredible gift that can never be replicated. How could you not get caught up in the joy of all this all-forgiving kingdom? Do you despise the gift that you've been given so much that you wouldn't want to give even a tiny portion of it to somebody else? On the other hand, you might fall back into the sinful nature where you once lived. You might find yourself looking a lot like the guards in the Stanford Prison Experiment, who have been given a power of moral superiority and uppityness that they never once earned. You might think that you aren't obligated to forgive others, but you're wrong. You have no right to hold a grudge against others for their sins. You might have before you were forgiven, but you certainly don't now. God has seen every single thing that you've done, every disgusting and shameful and hateful thing, and has forgiven every bit of it. Now, I sometimes think that forgiving other people is something that makes you a super special good person. But there's plenty of people who don't forgive sins who are good people nonetheless. But that's not what the parable says. The master says, you wicked servant. He doesn't say, you pretty good servant who can become an even better servant by forgiving others. Forgiveness is not optional to be a part of this kingdom because the whole kingdom was founded on forgiveness. And if you don't forgive, you're shunning the most distinctive aspect of this kingdom. You're telling it that you hate it. And it's true. The debt that the second servant owed was the first, was a lot of money. I'd take that 100 denarii or $30,000 any day. The sins that people commit against us can really be significant but we're obligated to forgive others because that's what the kingdom is. In fact, as this passage makes clear, we will be treated by God in accordance to how we treat those that sin against us. If we forgive others, their sins will be forgiven. If we forgive others their sins, we will be forgiven. If we don't forgive others, we won't be forgiven. The servant wanted his fellow servant thrown in jail for not paying his debts, so the master threw him in jail. He got exactly what he asked for. We will be judged exactly as harshly as we judge others. You read this parable, and you see so many parallels. The unforgiving servant asks his master, have patience with me, and I will pay you back everything. And His fellow servant asks him the exact same thing. Have patience with me, and I will pay you back. The very words that we use to bed forgiveness from God are the same ones that you will hear every day from those that are begging you for forgiveness. And this servant would have to be so cruel not to hear that in his fellow servant's voice. It'd be so hard for him not to remember what it was like five minutes ago to be the one with an incredible weight on his shoulders, begging his master, please just have patience with me a little longer and I'll pay you, knowing full well he would never actually pay him back. But the same thing is true for us. When someone is asking for our forgiveness, we should remember what it feels like to go to God when we need forgiveness. Not good. We should hear the same desperate plea in their voice that we had when we went to God. And how could we not take pity then, knowing the fear in their hearts that is just like the fear that was in our own? How could we not recognize that the only reason we have the power in standing to choose to forgive others is because God has given it to us? So then, don't you want your neighbor to feel the same joy and relief that you felt when God forgave you? Wouldn't you love to be just like your master, who loved you so much that he forgave you everything? And wouldn't you want this church to be the one that's built on the forgiveness of sins, where we can party and feast together because nothing stands between us and God and between me and you? Let's pray. All forgiving God, you have cleared us of an incredible debt that we could not pay. Help us in our daily lives to experience the freedom that comes from no longer being slaves, but being daughters and sons of God. We pray that that forgiveness would inspire us to forgive others, and so that they would also experience that joy. your name we pray, amen.